Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, it's Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Now, transphobia and trans rights. Woo! Um, it's fair to say Britain has a specific issue with transphobia. What do I mean by that? I mean, transphobia is obviously a big problem in lots of countries. In the United States, transphobia is more associated with the right. And if you're in the Democrats, doesn't matter if you're a, if a centrist or more of a Bernie crap, you support trans rights in the way you'd support gay rights or women's rights or anti-racism. Not the same here in Britain. Transphobia isn't just on the right, but amongst self-described progressives, centrists, and various people who call themselves left-wing. It's a big problem. Why? Why, why, why? A lot of people have lots of theories on this, but this is a really insightful discussion, which I think sheds a lot of light on it. It's with two trans writers, Sean Fay and Freddie McConnell. I love both of them. And they're a really good duo to chat to. This discussion was done on a live show a few weeks ago, but, I mean, nothing is out of date. It's all the same. Uh, but just bear that in mind. Um, and I think it's exceptionally educational. I learned a lot, and I think you will as well. Um, and hopefully, if you're not sure about trans rights, this will help. A uh, bit of housekeeping. If you want to help us expand, as we offer an alternative to a right-wing media that often does pick on minorities like trans people, then we really, really appreciate your support. Either on the supporter function in the description or patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. We really appreciate your support and you'll help decide who we speak to and what we talk about, which is brilliant. Um, but after all that, enough of me. Uh, this is an important, very, very important chat and I hope you learn a lot because I did. Now, what we're talking about today, there's been a full-blown onslaught against trans people uh, in the British media, and it's very similar to the onslaught that gay people traditionally faced at the hands of much of the media as well. Portrayed as sexual predators, um, preying on children, um, violators of the laws of biology. Uh, why should the majority have to change uh, because of a tiny minority? These are all the same tunes that were played about gay people uh, for a very long time, looking at extreme cases, extrapolating to demonize a whole minority. It's the full shebang, the full package, all being pumped out. And the truth, of course, about what trans people are going through is very different. Now, according to the official statistics, transphobic hate crimes have gone up fourfold in Britain in the space of half a decade. And according to Stonewall in 2018, about half of trans people didn't feel comfortable using public toilets through fear of discrimination and harassment. A third of trans people have been discriminated against because of their gender identity when visiting a cafe, restaurant, bar or nightclub uh, when they were open, of course. Uh, more than two in five trans people avoid certain streets because they don't feel safe. We could go on, a litany of stats, but you're not here above all else to listen to me babble on. You're here to listen to two incredible guests. So we're going to bring them in now. First off, 
Sean Fay, come on in. Make yourself at home. Hi. Oh, well. Hiya. Hi. In tier two, from tier four to tier two. You're tier two. I am. I am in tier two. I'm whining and dining. No, I'm not really. <laughs> but like we've been in it for one day, but I am feeling pretty guilty with all my London friends who yeah, are you stuck should... inside for Christmas. Yeah, you should be. Yeah, you should feel terrible <laughs> about it. Uh, Sean is an incredible journalist writer. Do you follow her on at uh, Sean Faye and just, just get involved with all the amazing stuff. She's got a brilliant book coming out next year, uh, which will, will, I'll be picking up a lot, but very excited. Uh, what's the title of the book? Are you allowed to say? Yeah, it's called <laughs> The Transgender Issue, Colon, An Argument for Justice. That was finalised literally a week ago, so it's half the press. Chef's kisses, little exclusive <laughs> in the Owen Jones show. Thank you very much. And <laughs> let's bring in, drumroll everyone, very excited, it's Freddie McGonnell. Hello. Hello. So Freddie is another brilliant uh, journalist, uh, a long-standing was a colleague of mine at the Guardian, um, mm-hmm. and also, and I'm going to put, we're going to put a little clip on, a little teaser. Uh, so Freddie uh, was in this brilliant documentary. I uh, was very lucky to go along and get the premiere thingy, uh, which was about his experience about becoming a trans dad. Let's have a little clip. I thought it would feel like more of a kind of natural thing because it's my body, but actually I'm really surprised by the extent to which I feel like a man who is doing something really odd. I did not expect to feel this uncomfortable and I think if all men got pregnant, then like, my God, pregnancy would be taken so much more seriously and talked about. And you'd, I would have known what to expect because it would be this thing that men have to suffer through. <laughs> no one tells you that morning sickness isn't just in the morning. And, no one tells you that you have to eat to feel better, but then that doesn't work half the time. And that you're just going to feel like an emotional disaster zone all the time. Fuck, this is fucking awful. <laughs> if men had to go through this all the time, you'd, you'd just never hear the end of it. Dandy, come on. Come on. <laughs> love it it's a great it was a brilliant documentary by the way so well made my hair. very moving very insightful very raw <laughs> i miss that hair that's all that's <laughs> <laughs> well, i like that I was, I was tempted to go i mean i was i was gonna get a haircut tomorrow alas so some people in insta egging me on but i think it suits you freddie but i think i've got the wrong shaped head egging you on mm. get it oh hello <laughs> Let's get straight into it. Right, let's do this. Right, so first off, let's start with some basics. It's quite interesting, actually, because Eddie Izzard has been in the news this weekend. Obviously, a very celebrated comedian. Lots of people grew up uh, watching her comedy stuff, and that's why it's important, because she's asked for her pronouns to be accepted as she slash her. So what I wanted to ask is, let's think about what we mean by trans, cis, non-binary, gender non-conforming. And maybe we could throw Eddie Hazard in. Where does Eddie Hazard fit into all this? Who wants to kick off? John, go on, you start with these. Okay, so the first thing I think that can be confusing to people is that uh, if you like trans politics, trans discourse, likes umbrella terms. So... Um, trans itself is an umbrella term and it describes like a huge range of identities. So the best way I could probably describe it, um, the typical way now would be 
anyone whose sense of their own gender of being either male, female, or something else entirely doesn't sit comfortably with or is different to it would have been assumed the way they would birth sex at you know their sex assignment at birth. So that could be a huge spread. So most people are aware of the idea of people like me and Freddie. I'm a trans woman and Freddie's a trans man is the kind of like in the old school language it would be like male to female, transsexual, female to male, transsexual, people who medically transition from one gender to another. But really, even though we might be the most understood part of that umbrella, there are actually there's a much bigger spectrum. Um, and non-binary people, also an umbrella term, describes everyone that wouldn't necessarily they would say that they may say that they were trans, but they wouldn't say that they were, you know, a man or a woman necessarily or all the time. Um, so there's a, there's a big spectrum there. And this is where Eddie Izzard comes in, is that she yeah, does identify as trans. She feel, she fits within the umbrella. The language she's used has changed over time um, to describe her identity. But she does sort of loosely describe herself as um, gender non-conforming. So she uses she, her pronouns, as do I, but I identify as a woman and I don't think Eddie Izzard does. She, but she does feel more comfortable with the kind of feminine end of the spectrum. Um, and so, yeah, she uses she, her pronouns, which is something that has existed throughout history, you know, whether it's um, transvestites, drag queens, um, Molly, Molly, um, Molly houses in the 17th century. There have always been like, gender non-conforming people who have like used the language or pronouns that don't quite fit with what people, society would assume of uh, the sex they were assigned at birth. So like Eddie Izzard is just a continuation of people who've always existed, really. Mm. Freddie, go on. Well, I think Sean gave a pretty good overview. I mean, it's amazing to have someone like Eddie come out in this way um, and confirm her pronouns. I think it's probably been an awareness within the community for a while that um, she's part of the community. Um, she's always been pretty low key about it. Um, and I remember going to see her perform live, I think in Brighton when I was a little confused queer teen who didn't know who I was yet. Um, and I loved her then and I absolutely love her now. Um, and you know, after Elliot Page's news as well, it's just lovely to have that kind of news for the community in this period, which is obviously hard for everyone full stop but um, especially hard for the trans community. Um, it shouldn't be that we need famous people to come out to sort of legitimize any of us or any of who we are. But so I see it as more of a kind of nice thing for the community, I suppose, rather than it being important in a, in a bigger sense. Um, but yet it is important because this is the world we live in where we are sort of celebrity obsessed. So we get some of our own. <laughs> um the common kind of cliched question LGBTQ people generally ask themselves is when did you know you were different or when did you come out? Uh, cisgendered gay people when they go on a date, that's often kind of very basic questions people ask. So I want to ask you, you both in terms of as to trans people, when did you know you were different, if you like? And maybe just tell a bit about your stories. Start with you, Sean. That's a diff it's a difficult one, right? So like, I was obviously, I was a very gender non-conforming child and that was kind of observed really from when I was very, very young. I, um, it's sort of like, there are a lot of trans people who say that they were insistent, like, you know, trans women who say I was a girl when I was four. I wasn't really like that. I was pretty fluid kind of uh, between femininity and masculinity as a small child. And I was quite lucky that I wasn't policed a lot by my mum or my grandmother. Um, but when I got to, 11, 12, secondary school, I went to an all boys school, <laughs> in retrospect was a mistake. 
the gender nonconformity, I think it's tolerated in children, but once you get to like a teenage uh, and presenting as a teenage boy, it became much more pronounced, became much more of a problem for other people. And that's when I really started to know I was different because people had a huge problem with me. Um, and obviously at that time, um, so we're talking the early 2000s, people would have interpreted that as gay rather than like a very feminine, gender nonconforming gay boy. Um, and I kind of knew that wasn't the case, but kind of, um, yeah, as I progressed like through school and university, I did come out as gay because I knew I liked boys, classic kind of uh, sort of like, yeah, incidents, even though I was very gender nonconforming, even compared to other gay men, I much preferred presenting in a very fluid way. Um, and yeah, always, always presented as quite feminine. Um, and yeah, I think it's a conversation in the tw in the 2010s, really, that opened up as I was in my early 20s. You had Laverne Cox, you had, you know, this is the importance of celebrity culture, whether you like it or not, is the fact that trans came into the mainstream. And I met trans people and I met non-binary people because I thought, well, that's not me. I'm not like Nadia from Big Brother. I'm not like Hayley from Coronation Street. I feel much more fluid. Um, and actually seeing different types of people and trans people and the way that they interpreted gender it kind of made me think again and I was like actually <laughs> I've never been okay in the the boy box even the gay boy box um and so yeah from there I kind of uh, initially thought I might be non-binary and then just went the whole way across to women <laughs> I mean frankly uh, with, I mean again it's a very different experience being a cisgendered that is not a trans gay guy in my case where you know, it's an experience LGBTQ people go through, but it, what I'm, I'm interested in terms of your journey with this, because, you know, when when I realised I was gay, I was like, oh, no, life's hard enough as it is, and am I going to get rejected and all the rest of it? So do you want to speak about that, you know, when you knew you were different and yeah. I guess those those fears and what it was like when you came out? Yeah, um, I think similar to Sean in a way, I, I always was gender non-conforming. And obviously, typically, um, being read as a tomboy is much more socially acceptable than being read as a sort of effeminate boy. So I had a fairly easy time of it um, when I was very young. I mean, and, and that was the way I felt and the way I expressed myself from a very, very young age. Um, apparently, I used to insist on being called Pirate Pete as a sort of two-year-old, and I don't remember that. Mm -hmm. but that been told um but yeah i i also wasn't using the language that we now associate with trans children i just didn't know that that was a thing for years and years and years and years i just knew that i felt different um i remember when um another a friend of mine who um i suppose at the time would have also been called a tomboy um and is now a cis woman um i remember that she was kind of my last friend standing as it were and then uh, she started to uh enter into her teenage years in the much more acceptable stereotypical way and I remember my mum saying to me like don't worry just it will happen you'll just you know one day you'll just it'll click and you'll feel fine and I believed her and I was really waiting for that moment and I, um, I really wanted it to come and it never did uh, and then it was and then it, yeah like you say Sean like, when you reach your teenage years all that stuff becomes just totally unacceptable I started being really badly bullied I was labelled a lesbian for a long time, and, and, and in a way, in a very, you know, that was used as a weapon. That, that word against me, and I was at a very small school um, in the middle of Kent, and I didn't know that it could be anything but a bad thing. So it didn't feel good, and also I just knew again deep down that that wasn't what I was. Um, I've always been attracted to men, as it happens, which complicates things. And I was at university, and um, it was sort of the dawn of YouTube, and that's where I saw my first ever trans masculine person 
in a documentary that was ripped, I think, from like the Discovery Channel or something in America. And I spent the next two weeks after that in a kind of euphoric state where I wasn't really paying attention to anything. Uh, I was just thinking about, wow, like, this is so amazing what I've discovered. Like, this is me. Oh, my God, there's an answer. And then I realized after about two weeks, oh, like maybe other people aren't going to be as jazzed about this as I am. Hmm. And then I spent the next like four years <laughs> trying to figure out what to do and waiting for my first appointment at a gender clinic. So, yeah, always knew I've always felt the same, but I've just only in the last sort of 10 years or so had the language for it. So, I mean, if we're thinking about the reality, the holistically, the reality facing trans people in Britain, of course, that's a, a very diverse range. There are trans people of colour, there are working class trans people, there are bourgeois middle class uh, trans people. Uh, you know, there are trans people who live in small villages, there are trans people who live in big cities with queer communities. So obviously, there is not one shared experience. But if we're going to talk about, you know, whether it be from homelessness, transphobic hate crimes, uh, quadrupling, uh, mental distress, the fear of using a toilet. I mean, could you sum up some of the big, with it, before we talk about healthcare, uh, which we'll come on to separately, but what, what are the kind of big you know, the reality that many trans people have to face in this country, that someone who isn't trans and who's cisgender wouldn't understand. Sean, do you want to go for that first? Yeah, so it's good that you mentioned housing because housing is such an interesting one because it's it's one that's so huge and no one in the media ever mentions um, in relation to trans people. And actually, to be honest, even a lot of LGBT organisations don't mention it unless they're specific ones like AKT or Stonewall Housing who deal in housing. But like, 25% of the youth homeless population identifies LGBT and we know that there are trans people overrepresented in that so the AKT the chief exec of AKT told me once that like in London about 30-35% of the young people they see are trans young people and you think that like, trans are so like so much less than LGB young kids and that's because like society's changed we know that people are coming out younger we sometimes hear the good stories about people coming out younger but people coming out younger come can often come with a huge cost and one of them being homelessness and family rejection so housing is a huge one and obviously with um universal credit and the kind of cutting away of housing benefit for young people, especially systematically uh, in the last decade of austerity. That's a huge, huge consideration. Um, another one is domestic violence. Trans people experience huge amounts of domestic violence, both, you know, from birth families and parents, but also from romantic partners. Um, so in November, we just uh, had Trans Day of Remembrance. Unfortunately, in Britain, the murder rate for trans people is quite low. But if you look at it kind of globally and you look at the cases in Britain, it tends to be trans women murdered by either in sex work or um, by their own male partners, very similar to cisgender women. Um, but we also know trans men experience really high levels of domestic violence. So it's these kind of like systemic issues. And the problems there is the crisis services that are set up for cisgender people. So refuges, binary um, homelessness shelters, where it's like the male shelter, the female shelter, particularly when you get outside of big cities, they're just not set up for trans people at all. So I, I know a trans guy who was um, kicked out of home, experienced like, huge abuse at home, but was too afraid to either go to a women's homeless shelter or a men's homeless shelter because of what his presentation was and where he was in his transition. And so he actually had to kind of present himself to the local authority as homeless instead. Um, so, you know, these kind of like services not really meeting the existence of trans people with kind of respect or dignity is a huge issue. Freddie, what would you add? What are the kind of issues do you think that a lot of people watching this, most people watching this, I'm sure are not trans, they're cisgendered, 
they might not know in in many cases people who are trans or not know trans people very well what would you say in terms of the, some of the big things that they should be aware of that they take for granted that for a trans person is actually a big obstacle in their life um i think sean is definitely more well placed to talk about the kind of social policy stuff um that affects trans people's everyday lives like that's not really my field of expertise mm. i I think that um, it's worth just bearing in mind something that may not seem as, well, certainly I suppose isn't as serious in terms of someone's day-to-day -day survival, but I think probably one of the unhidden costs of the media discourse about trans lives at the moment is just how, um, <laughs> just how sort of devastating and um, uh, depressing it can be for the community as a whole. It's pretty much, it feels like often all we talk about and the kind of sharing war stories and the feeling of, there's this almost like weekly cycle now of everyone I feel like gets holds their breath for Sunday um, when the broadsheets are going to drop the new stories that the new kind of uh, smear pieces that they've come up with and the headlines uh, and the comment pieces. And Sunday is always a total shit show and you just don't want to watch the news. Or you don't want to turn on the radio often. Um, I know that if something's sort of coming up, um, a story is going to break that I maybe have got wind of, I will avoid the radio and newspapers that day. Um, and it really, you know, we've gone from being a totally invisible uh, minority, which obviously has its own challenges, um, to being a far too visible minority, which is quite terrifying. And I think, um, I can't really speak to this, but I know that um, street harassment is a huge issue facing trans women and trans feminine people in particular, but also trans men. Um, and I certainly really um cherish and feel grateful for my ability to be read every day as a cis man because i know what protection that affords me and i would be terrified going out every day if i didn't have that sort of invisibility cloak oh my god i can't believe i just used a jk rolling content warning on our lives <laughs> Um, oh, by the way, for, by the way, in terms of comments, everyone, if you want to help support the channel and also put a question to Sean and, and Freddie, use Super Chat, and that will help us in terms of, for example, the documentary we're going to make about young trans people uh, and uh, and and super stickers. Oh, I'm such a boomer. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what you're doing. Uh, but that's very much appreciated. So, in terms of let's before we talk about the media specifically. Um, the recent Tavistock ruling on puberty blockers, that's been a big thing which we've heard about in the news. And this uh, this is about, um, it was focused on supposed consent of people under the age of, uh, who, are, who are under the age of 18 about puberty blockers. Um, and I suppose the issue, what the, the narrative built up across the media, not just the right-wing media, is basically vulnerable, young, gender non-conforming people are being pushed into medicalization and making life-changing, um, uh, irreversible cha changes. When the reality is actually young trans people overwhelmingly aren't getting the actual support they need. So, Sean, do you want to just start on that Tavistock ruling and what the reality actually is? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say, actually, about that narrative that you mentioned about lots of children or children being pushed, gender non-conforming children being pushed onto blockers, for example, is that the Tavistock data in the trial um, that they gave said that for the year 2019 to 2020, so the most recent year, it was 95 children uh, under the age of 18 were newly referred for blockers. So we're talking about, like, there's 12 million children in Britain and we're talking about 95 uh, a year max 
being put on blockers. Um, so it's a, it's a very small number considering um, the level of media coverage it gets. What I would say about blockers is where trans health advocates um, disagree with the High Court ruling is because they were looking at the capacity of a child to consent to uh, to have full knowledge of a treatment that they um, th yeah that they would be prescribed in the case of blockers, which is uh, a drug which can suppress one's natural puberty, if you like, or the, the irreversible changes of puberty for as long as they're administered. And then uh, the suppression will stop if you stop taking the blockers. So they're designed, one, to alleviate dysphoria in very young children who are already starting on a kind of puberty perhaps earlier, or in some cases to buy a child more time um, to think about whether or not they would want to progress onto cross-sex hormones. The reality is all the data shows that mo like most, pretty much all kids who go on blockers go on to cross-sex hormones. We would say, well, that's the sign that it's the right kids being prescribed it. They're the ones that have persistent dysphoria, it works for them, they're trans, they go on to cross-sex hormones. But what the um, High Court thought was that it was more like a kind of slippery slope, maybe they're a, way, um, a gateway drug. Um, and so they kind of said, well, if, you, if, if blockers lead on to cross-sex hormones and then to surgery inevitably, you have to be able to consent to them all, if that makes sense, in one go. So they said that actually a child under the age of 16 can't consent to blockers because they don't they can't fully understand the implications of where blockers might take them it's a very strange approach not really reflecting any other area of pediatric health um and nhs england have responded by imposing a blanket ban on blockers for anyone under the age of 16 which is a, i think a huge mistake because um yes in some cases there are some ambiguous cases where perhaps people need more support people may need more time um but the reality is, is that now there's this sort of blanket approach that anyone under the age of 16, no matter how dysphoric they are, no matter how much it would benefit them, and even if they've been told that they were going to you know, expect them, have just had that lifeline taken away. I think the other thing to say is that the case was brought by a young woman, Kira Bell, who detransitioned. She transitioned, she started puberty blockers at 16. She went on to testosterone, I believe, at 17, and then she had um, a double mastectomy and chest reconstruction surgery at 20. She, clearly deeply regrets that and i think we're often misconstrued trans people i mean as like having no sympathy for someone like that at all that's not the case but i'd say the parallel is similar to abortion regret or narratives of abortion regret is that while there should be all the support possible for someone that deeply regrets medical steps they've taken and they are very few people in reality that can't be used to inform policy right like everyone has bodily autonomy a 14 year old girl who's going to experience a huge mental health impact from an unwanted pregnancy should be enabled, be allowed to um, access an abortion. Similarly, a teenager who can have the effects of puberty blockers as a standalone treatment explained to them and is very dysphoric should be able to have the autonomy to access blockers, as is the international best practice. What's happened in England now is we have like fallen completely out step with like Spain, Australia, the US, Canada. Um, all these like international centers of trans health for this very unique approach um, where we've just said like you need a court to to decide not doctors uh, if you're under the age of 18. Um, for those asking by the way that was a brilliant answer um, for super chat use the dollar sign below the chat if you're on Facebook come and join us on YouTube because I know people are watching on both it's very confusing uh, and and that will help support the channel anyway uh yeah freddie i mean i'm interested in in just weaving this in with your own experience because the narrative partly has been that that these treatments will damage the reproductive potential of 
young people. I mean, it's, I mean, one thing talking about reproductive potential of young people. It's, well, let's talk about that. It's icky, um, but because obviously you're you're a trans you're a trans dad. You've got a, you've got a kid, and everything. You've done a whole documentary about it, where you can quite literally see you giving birth. It's quite something. So just weaving your own experience and what you think in terms of that whole narrative. Yeah, I, I, it really um, became apparent to me that that was being used in a cynical way uh, in the Kira Bell case and by Kira Bell potentially herself. It was towards the end of the waiting for the judgment. Um, so maybe about sort of six weeks, two months ago, there was a headline that said something like, I don't know whether I've been made infertile um, by transition. Um, and it's it's your classic moral panic kind of dog whistly type thing, all, all those kind of buzzwords, right? Where Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's all about um, female uh, reproductive potential being damaged in some way. Um, it's so handmaid's tale And also what gets me about it is I know that that's... <laughs> if she was genuinely concerned about her fertility rather than just saying that in order to strike fear into the hearts of Middle England, then she could very easily go to her GP or um, any NHS fertility clinic and get it checked. <laughs> and, and, and I'm very confident in saying, with my experience now in the world of trans masculine pregnancy and fertility, that if she was on testosterone for a few years, or even longer than that, um, Unless you had a, unless someone has a pre-existing fertility issue, there's absolutely no evidence that testosterone damages your fertility. So, the ease with which she, that could, that could be checked, and also the mounting evidence that testosterone doesn't damage transmasculine fertility, just makes me want to tear my hair out because I, I like I know, and, and I know most people wouldn't know that, but I think that there is um, a a willful ignoring of people with my experience and of that knowledge in general because being able to again like fearmonger on that front is just so effective and then when you have young people it's still really gross and we shouldn't be talking about whether young people you know can go on to have children one day unless it's something that they're concerned about and that they need to discuss privately with their doctors and their families because absolutely that's of course valid but again there's no evidence that that is a risk um, there's various sort of 
health risks and dangers that have been thrown around in relation to the Tavistock case. They talk about bone density, they talk about cancer risk, um, and the other ones, but I mean, cancer is another one where trans men used to be told that we had to have a hysterectomy after five years of being on testosterone because we had an elevated risk of ovarian and cervical cancer. And only in the last couple of years have we now realized that that's not true. There's no evidence for that. No, no one knows where that came from. And, and trans men have gem, have decreased, uh, have stopped having hysterectomies at the same rate, because that comes with its own complications in terms of having to be on hormone replacement therapy and that kind of thing. It's all really complicated, but basically the community holds lots of knowledge around this stuff. And if people spoke to us, then they would find out. And also trans parents of trans children tend to know a lot about um, the, their children's healthcare. I spoke to one parent who told me that it's now been fairly well established that as long as a trans boy has started having a period, then he can go on blockers and it won't dam there's no chance of it damaging his fertility or no more chance of it damaging his fertility as there is of testosterone damaging his fertility because the key thing is having mature eggs. Um, so there might be a risk for very young children who haven't started uh, their period, but that just kind of seems like a, a waste of energy talking about in this country and sort of a almost a, just such a manipulation because the idea that in the UK a young person could access puberty blockers at sort of eight or nine which for some young people might be the right thing might be necessary um, because of the psychological distress they're going through that is just so far from the reality of what we have in this country where most young people won't be able to access it until they're 15 16 at the very earliest and this is before obviously this most recent judgment because of the insane waiting times mm -hmm. so yeah, it's all just very frustrating, <laughs> and uh, and and yeah, yeah. The the idea that um, trans, you know, just the fact that trans men again have been told for years that they need to have a hysterectomy, and also that testosterone therapy makes them infertile, it's just not true. Like there is no medical scientific evidence for any of that, and there's lots and lots and lots of anecdotal evidence against that. There's one emerging, there's one small study that's been done in the US now that that supports this idea that testosterone doesn't damage our fertility. So basically our doctors have just been telling us we can't have children. We should give up that idea. Um, and then when you come to the GRA, which is the legislation that gives trans people legal recognition in this country, um, as a result of the case I bought, the government clarified that basically um, your gender recognition is valid and your GRC, the certificate that you get, that, that, that sort of applies in all areas of your life apart from a couple of exemptions some of most of which are like really obscure like peerages and inheritance around titles and that kind of thing but also apparently if you become a parent so the second you become a parent your gender is no longer le legally recognized and that's not just on the birth certificate but that's if you're going through fertility treatment and it's also throughout your child's life so in any circumstance under which you need to be legally recognized as a parent me as a trans man i will revert legally to being a woman and vice versa a trans woman will revert legally to being a man and that includes being a father on the birth certificate. I mean, that's, I, I don't think that was the original intention of the legislation or of parliament. I just, I think they just didn't really think about it. But the fact that we now have that situation is sort of de facto sterilization, basically saying you can have your legal gender recognition as long as you don't become a parent. I think that's really bizarre and kind of scary. Mm -hmm. It just adds to the whole <laughs> transphobic UK situation. Which we're going to go on specifically to deal with. I mean, I just want to say lots of shout outs for thanks. Thank you for Adrian for the super sticker. Adrian Harrop is a, a trans ally. He's got lots of bile from 
transphobes online. Uh, Phantom Fool, thank you for your support. Ask about moderators. We have a paid moderator on. He's playing whack-a-mole with transphobes. See you, transphobes. You're getting kicked out. Uh, thank you, Frank Shales. Uh, thank you also to Simonon Honoré. I think I've said it. I, can't, I don't know if I said it right. Uh, I did. I did learn French as a kid in France, and uh, my accent's gone. Hamish Steele, specifically. Now I'm going to come on to this because I'm going to use this as a segue into our next uh, into our next uh, part of the discussion. Why do we think the UK specifically has a transphobia problem, especially in the left? So many of my US friends are shocked by the state of it. Now, in the US, obviously, there's huge amounts of transphobia. There's transphobia everywhere. Transphobia is a big, big problem everywhere. Let's not pretend otherwise. But it is also true in the US that when you get, for example, Donald Trump uh, banning trans people from serving in the military, when you get bathroom bills, uh, again, part of the anti-trans moral panic, it's been pushed by the Republican right. Mainstream feminism is very generally trans-inclusive in the United States. And often so-called centrists and so-called moderates will call themselves supporters of trans rights. Uh, now, this isn't, again, Biden and Kamala Harris have their own problems, and Kamala Harris herself has been questioned on her own actual record on trans rights, specifically uh, in relation to a, a trans woman prisoner. But, you know, the vice president of the United States has her pronouns in her bio. And let's just do this, just a little clip here from Joe Biden in his speech accepting the presidency, just to give you a flavor. I'm proud of the coalition we put together, the broadest and most diverse coalition in history. Democrats, Republicans, independents, progressives, moderates, conservatives, young, old, urban, suburban, rural, gay, straight, transgender, white, Latino. So this was the first U.S. uh, president-elect to to pay tribute to trans people uh, in his in a speech of that kind. Uh, someone else has just asked, um, in fact, we've got got this here. Oh, wow. Thank you for all the support, everyone. This is kind of overwhelming, the amount we're getting in. Uh, Trans liberation now. Yes, Emily, absolutely. Uh, someone asked, and I've lost your comment. Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you as well to Hearn, which is about the, ah, no, that's okay. We don't need to put that one on. There was someone asked a very, very good question from America about why this so-called TERF, this anti-transform. Here we go, Rachel. I'm American. So-called left-wing TERFs are way less of a social phenomenon in the US, UK. What's so intrinsically British about transphobia? What is going on? Come on, answer it. Who wants to start? It is, it's very, very striking. What is the... It, what? Okay, go so on. interesting. Can you hear me okay? Because I've just taken my headphones out because um, I need yeah. to charge my device. But I was going to say, interestingly, anti-trans feminism actually did start in the US, not to pin blame, but it, it originally kind of originated in the 70s in the US in the kind of uh, Janice Raymond transsexual empire. But what happened is I think it kind of like um, died out really as a kind of mainstream force in the US by the 80s and 90s. And there was a much bigger kind of influence in American academia of queer feminism, Judith Butler, etc. I think in Britain... Uh, why it's sort of taken hold. The difference between the US and Britain, the key difference, I think, is that there's like almost, if you like, two strains of transphobia. There's the kind of one that is there with like Trump and the Christian right and the far right, which is trans people are gross and unnatural and um, degenerate and in a similar way to the way gay people are. And so we just want them to not exist for that reason. Um, The other is a kind of much more liberal position, which is... uh, more the case in Britain, which is it doesn't have that kind of um, disgusted gender nonconformity, so say, but um, 
has a real problem with the idea that trans identities are valid, particularly, I would say, trans women's. Um, and yeah, I think in a feminist tradition in the UK, I think the, uh, the long-standing platform of very transphobic feminism, for example, Jermaine Greer, who was, you know, I mean, she's older now, so she's not around as much, but she was like a staple of British public life, our newspapers, our broadsheets. She was on Question Time the whole time. Uh, you know, in her, in her book, the, sequ the sequel to The Female Unit, one of the biggest selling feminist books of all time, the whole woman is, the, the chapter on trans women is just outrageously hateful. And, you know, people like her kind of led the discourse. So for a long time in Britain, someone like her, um, you know, Julie Bindle, she has apologized for articles she wrote in 2004 and the tone of them. But, you know, in, in the noughties, you were allowed to write for The Guardian, The Observer, and say pretty extreme stuff that just wouldn't get printed now, thank God. Um, under the cloak of feminism. And so there's just a much longer standing tradition of that in Britain. And I think in the last 10 years, there's been a kind of considered effort in a very closed media commentary group. And I think it's worth saying that the US has um, much more kind of diversity in feminism in terms of black feminism, Bell Hooks, um, Audre Lorde, this kind of um, Angela Davis, for example, all these um, black feminism is much more inclusive of gen gender diversity is that in the UK it's tended to stay as quite middle class quite white um, and uh, certainly in the media quite liberal so if you look at the New Statesman the Guardian the editor the you know the editorial choices for the last 10 years have really kept trans issues as a sort of live debate do we really want to give them rights is there is it going too far that's a discussion that's been much more acceptable in the liberal uh, left uh, in Britain than it ever has in the US. So I would say that's, um, yeah, a big key aspect of it. The other thing I would say is that in British culture, we have, um, for Americans, I would always use the example of like Meghan Markle, we have a very vicious tabloid culture um, and have for a long time. And um, people forget that up until about 10 years ago, it was perfectly normal for the British tabloids to out trans people who weren't public figures, you know, sex swap mechanic. And it was just some private member of the public who transitioned. And it was even like submitted to Leveson. And we come from a tradition of huge national cruelty <laughs> to trans people in the media. And I think what happened in, on Twitter and social media is trans people got a voice. Often they objected to the way that they were being talked about, discussed, the conversation occurring over their head. And I think there are a lot of commentators who just don't like the fact they've been told to piss off on Twitter or told that what they were saying was offensive or been made to feel stupid. Um, and that's a huge source, <laughs> I would say, of media transphobia in Britain. It's just personal gripes about these like, you know, uppity mobs on Twitter telling you that what you're saying is screwed up. Sorry, long, long answer. Very, very, very eloquent and very on point answer, though. And Fred, I mean, I should say thanks again. Keep the super chat, super stickers coming, and I will do a big shout out and read out the questions as well as they come in. Yeah, Freddie, I mean, I think it's it's, it's this disturbing phenomenon. You see this online. Graham Linehan, I think, is a really striking example. The You know, he was a kind of generic centrist comedian. Uh, Father Ted, you know, I loved Father Ted, but it's been ruined now. Like so many shows have been ruined by the behaviour of middle-aged comedians. Um, is... You just became this, is this phenomenon of online radicalization? I think it's a really interesting case study where you, you'll you see profiles. Graham Linehan became obsessed with trans people. Like 3 a.m. just tweeting about trans people in the most absurd derogatory fashion. Uh, but you've got entire Twitter accounts like that. They're going, you can see them going down rabbit holes online. So you've got that online radicalization. As you've already said, you've got the media from right to liberalism, let's be honest. Yeah 
Well, how do you describe that phenomenon? I mean, do you think it is, you know, there's online radicalization. How much do you think of that is at play? And how are people being kind of preyed upon by anti-trans, uh, and, you know, anti-trans bigots online? That's what's happening. But also what's going on with the, the mainstream media, including the liberal media? Well, I think it's really interesting you mentioned Graham Linehan. I think it's important to state at the beginning that he is the most extreme of the extreme end of... Um, you know, getting into this and it becoming basically his entire life, it seems like, and leading to the breakdown of his marriage and just becoming totally obsessed. But it's so interesting where he comes from, right? He's a comedian. I think what Sean said there about people just being annoyed that they're being told that they can't say rude things about a certain tiny group of people anymore is really true. And it's really true of comedy in particular. I think if you have, you look at uh, Jermaine Greer, um, and the way she spoke about trans people and you look at Julie Birchall is another really good example. Um, what her most infamous line, I won't repeat it, but um, uh, describing trans women. Where does, where does that imagery and where do those ideas come from? Like, don't they come from sort of the British comedic tradition and history? You know, we have this, and, and I'm not trying to say <laughs> that these things are inherently evil, something like Panto and Pantomime Dames or people well, I suppose nowadays we still have Mrs. Brown's Boys. I remember going to see In Inbetweeners movie, I think it was, which I'm not sure how old that is, but I think, you know, much, much more recent than Ace Ventura, for instance, which is one that everyone always brings up in terms of a depiction of a trans woman. And I was floored by the transphobic joke right at the end of In Inbetweeners. And I just thought, wow, this is still totally okay in this Love country. Actually. Love actually had Love a actually. joke Absolutely. in the first nine minutes. Like, Absolutely. You know, it's, it is there, I agree. Yeah, it's it's something that that is how we've been taught as a, as a British society to think of trans people. That so those are the images that journalists will evoke, and they'll say, "Well, that's what these people are." And then those journalists teach more people how to think about trans people. So it's that that sort of heritage, and then those people like Graham Linehan, are and Robert Webb, for instance, um, are just. Yeah, it seems like pissed off when they get told that actually these people are real people and you can't just use them for your lazy jokes when you can't come up with anything else. Um, so I think that it, that sort of explains a little bit, at least maybe, of the particularly British nature of this. Um, and I think when it comes to online radicalization, I mean, there's got to be tons of parallels with, with any kind of radicalization, right? Like I think um, I've heard the phrase love bombing being used. Um, which uh, often happens to someone who perhaps comes out online um, and says something um, misguided or, um, yeah, potentially transphobic um, and then sort of gets identified by a group of people who would um, take rights away from us and, and they get sort of inducted into that world. And I've heard people talk about, there's a Scottish journalist, I can't remember her name, She's on Instagram as Von Von Vons, I think. She did an amazing podcast talking about her journey into that world and then back out of it, sort of being radicalized into trans exclusion, radical feminism, and then seeing the light and coming out. And then there's another woman, um, Amy Dyes, Amy Dyes on Twitter, who's also gone on that journey. I think we've got a lot to learn from them. Um, yeah, sorry, I've sort of lost the thread of the question. No, no, that was great. That was great. I mean, you know, there's some other great questions which have come in. So I'll, I, I want to ask this to Sean as well. I mean, it's interesting when online you'll often see support for trans rights being construed as misogyny when the polling consistently shows that women are the most likely to support trans rights. Every single poll 
without exception shows that, not just in Britain, also in the United States as well. But to what extent do you think in terms of feminism, this is a generational split? And obviously, not to be overly crude about it, you know, my mum is 69 years old and spends a lot of time arguing with anti-trans bigots on on Facebook and is one of the people who inspired me as my, my feminist mum to support trans rights. Um, but to what extent do you think there is a generational aspect going on here and 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 what's that about that kind of clash within feminism because obviously it's not just about trans rights it's also about a feminism being inclusive of women of color for example yeah it's an interesting one that because i think i've even changed my position on it because i think a few years ago i might have been more crudely frankly ageist about the idea that it was a real generational divide and i think just I've realized that once you get offline, that's not the case. And I think it's it's kind of unfair to older feminists to um, to kind of just imply. I do think I think one key thing is that younger women, cisgender feminists, do tend to I tend to if the reality is if I walk into a feminist or a women's space and everyone there is under 40, I feel like it's going to be much more normalized as a trans woman. I, it's OK for me to be there. If it was a much more long-standing thing, then perhaps maybe I'd do a little bit of research to just check, you know, what what their vibe, their politics on this issue are. Um, but what I would say is that sometimes that you know the the flip side is that um, there can be huge actual misogyny directed at, um, at cisgender women who support trans rights. I think our friend Ellie O'Hagan gets a huge amount of like dismissal and um, being referred to as a handmaiden, for example, for supporting trans rights and and that comes from older feminists sometimes too and what i would say is that there's this kind of like canard that it's like to support trans rights is all young naive women who haven't had kids yet don't know the real toils of being biologically a woman um and therefore like don't really know what they're supporting uh, and I, what i would always say to that is like angela davis is like pretty much my feminist icon um if you like and she's in her 70s and over the summer she was um giving loads of talks around black lives matter movement you know and she's someone's an academic and an activist went to prison you know literally has <laughs> walked the walk and she says the trans community show us the way in terms of um all sorts of radical movements because trans people challenge our very ideas of normality and normalcy and that's that's what feminism is it's challenging what we've been taught to think is natural um and so, yeah, so like, you know, so when you look to someone like her, it's quite obvious that you don't have to, it's not just about, you can't just say, oh, it's all oh, they're older and they don't get it because there are plenty of older mm -hmm. feminists who do. Yeah, I, can I just add to that? It was making me think of um, a colleague who I spoke to um, a while ago who has a past, a background in the sort of trade unionist movement and um, I think would have once, but perhaps doesn't now identify herself as a radical feminist of the 60s and 70s. She was saying how sad she was that um, a lot of her friends who are anti-trans have basically stopped talking to her. Um, and so, which, you know, gives a lie, gives a lie to this whole idea that, oh, we just need open and frank discussion and blah, blah, Actually, <laughs> when they know someone in real life who would talk about this stuff with them, um, respectfully they, they tend to disappear um and her take on this situation um which is i wouldn't uh i'm, I'm not claiming this as my own but I, like it was just really interesting to hear her talk about the sadness of losing her friends but also the sadness of what she saw as a misdirected anger and frustration of a lot of women who spent many many years um giving up their free time uh and their energy to campaigning for women's rights um and you know, in a, in a radical way, in a distinctly determinedly radical way, who were 
now not feeling like they were reaping the benefit of it and who is the easiest target if you are feeling like all your life's work is gone has gone under unappreciated or underappreciated especially by young cis women who it wouldn't i suppose be uh, a good idea to attack directly well trans people are a much easier target and so that's how that's how she kind of read it was like these people are understandably annoyed and feeling sidelined often in sort of life and you know ignored in the way that a lot of older people are and especially older women and they've just picked the most bizarre target for their frustration i think it's a charitable reading of it in terms of we've got some questions coming in in fact i will read out all the super chats and super sticker superheroes at the end but here's one so i'm a student in the netherlands and i had to explain what a turf was to my class what do you think has had a bigger impact on UK anti-trans activism? Corbett versus Corbett, Section 28, which of course banned the so-called promotion of homosexuality uh, in public bodies and schools in particular in the 1980s onwards, or colonialism. And another one, which I saw flash up, so I'm going to find it. Here we go. Yeah, here we go. England has also a very uh, dichotomously, oh, hello, <laughs> puerile slash Victorian mentality compared to the rest of the world. It hates sexuality while being very sexually preoccupied. That's Ooh, very true. Funny. I agree with that. Go on. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, the first question is interesting. Like, so I should explain Corbett versus Corbett. I mean, who, I don't know who uh, someone's up on their English legal history. That was a case that the model April Ashley, when she divorced her husband, she got married. She was a model in the 60s. She was trans. People didn't know she was. She was outed. Um, and she divorced her husband. And it was the first case in law that said, you know, because she he married her knowing she was trans, he obviously then didn't want to give her a divorce settlement. So he was like, actually, she's a man. And same-sex marriage wasn't allowed then. Um, and the court kind of ruled that a trans woman was a man, unless, you know, and that was the case until 2004. Then it was Section 28. And then uh, what was the final colonialism? I think all of them had aspects. I would say Section 28, obviously it targeted gay people, right? But I grew up, you know, if you're gender non-conforming, if you're in the LGBT umbrella, I grew up under the kind of specter of Section 28. It had a huge impact on me and anyone my age who's any kind of shade of LGBTQ. Um, I think it was one of the most devastating pieces of legislation. It had a huge repressive effect on a whole generation of people and continues to have effects today because there are a whole like a re some of the worst homophobia transphobia whatever at school i heard was not from other pupils but from teachers it really distorted you know fortunately they're all retiring now but, um, but like a whole generation of teachers so i would say it was probably that colonialism has a huge impact too is that i think it goes back to the feminist point is british discourse is very um unconcerned with our own history of colonialism our own whiteness our own kind of like white supremacy if you like and in terms of um, gender spectrums, the history of kind of gender non-conforming, gender variant people, and the way that the British Empire suppressed that, um, a lack of kind of feminist analysis of like colonialism and British feminism and British womanhoods, um, well, British conceptions of womanhood in British feminism, it does go unexamined. So I would say it's a huge reason why people don't like any kind of diversity at all. And trans women in particular in the feminist discourse seem to really get brunt of that. Yeah, Freddie, do you have anything before I'm going to, we're going to end, I don't think we like to do a kind of um, go the full spectrum, want to kind of look to the future and look for some hope as well. But do you have anything on that? What do you think? Uh, it made me think, um, we, what about the GRA reform? <laughs> like that might not be something that I suppose has received such an attention outside of the UK as it has inside. But I think it's important not to lose sight of how um, rapidly 
things changed when the GRA reform was proposed and it was considered at the time like it would be fairly straightforward, uncontroversial, just sort of administrative changes to this 2004 piece of legislation. That was the thing that lots of anti-trans people and feminists and all sorts, gender critical, well, that's where the term gender critical came from, right? Mm -hmm. They saw this as their opportunity to attack legislation that was designed to recognize and protect trans people. It's where you have all the groups uh, that are like feminist groups, but are actually, in reality, we all know single issue hate groups or single issue pressure groups like Women's Place UK, Transgender Trend, or the ones that are sort of concerned about children and having reasonable concerns and blah, blah, blah. Like the way things changed, when I started working as a journalist full time, I was being asked to write pieces that were like, why it's rude not to use someone's pronoun and like what it's like to meet a trans person. It was like really fluffy kind of like, oh, this is nice. You're interesting. Oh, we want to know. We want to learn. And then within two or three years, um, here we are. <laughs> uh, or maybe, maybe sort of four or five years. In fact, um, it's been now, Jesus Christ. But yeah, I think um, the landscape has changed beyond recognition. So absolutely, I agree with everything John said and all of that stuff informs where we are today but i don't think any of us five years ago could have possibly imagined how the consultation itself and the reforms would be so catastrophically mishandled and how the tory government having instigated the reforms none of us particularly were asking for i don't think like in this particular way having just thrown us under the bus <laughs> rather than get those reforms through and made us into this massive sort of sideshow and punch punching bag and whatever whipping boy um uh, yeah I, I think that's just had a hugely devastating effect um on the on the sort of discourse and the progress for trans equality in the uk and i'm not sure how we're going to get back to where we were i mean it is striking isn't it uh, before we end on the looking forward bit it, the the parallels i started with this but between the anti-trans moral panic and the anti-gay moral panic it, it, it i mean it's sometimes what's that phrase history doesn't often repeat itself but it often rhymes and you know when you get you know gay people were sexual predators you'd always get the obviously very real stories in the catholic church in the scouts of men preying on young boys in the 1970s as the film milk showed there was an attempt to ban gay teachers partly on the basis that well, was there or was there not gay teachers who preyed on children? Of course. Um, you know, whether it be biology is destiny, God made Adam and Eve, he didn't make Adam and Steve, uh, that children are going to be manipulated uh, and, you know, that whole idea, it's no life for young people uh, if they become gay, exploiting parental fear and love for their children. Uh, you know, why should the majority have to change because of this tiny minority? I mean, what do you think, John? It's just, it just seems like the regurgitation of the same thing all over and over again. Yeah, and one thing I would say is that's really interesting is people love to like whitewash or pinkwash, whatever you want to call it, the past too, about where gay people are at. So one thing, for example, Janice Turner, who writes um, a lot of columns that I would call anti-trends for the Times, she's always like, well, gay people didn't want anything too much. They just wanted to get married and live their lives in peace. This is a completely different issue. And it's like, well, actually, no, when you look at some of the, even the legislative changes, so for example, the equalisation of the age of consent, that debate around that, like one, I can't remember which Baroness, Baroness Young, I think it was, a conservative peer at the time, called it a paedophile's charter. That what, what organisations like Stonewall, what people like Peter Thatcher, whatever were com campaigning for, was inherently kind of predatory. People forget this now. And also with gay people, it was kind of the idea of contagion and that combined with the AIDS crisis. Because there was really serious discourse about like, you know, I think in the, people forget that there was, I think it's the News of the World in, in the early 90s did a poll that basically said that 
um, that, that uh, being gay should be recriminalized for public health because of the amount of the cases of uh, HIV AIDS spiraling. You know, this idea of contagion was really there and we forget now because on the whole, in public life, on the left, liberals, cisgender gay people are more accepted, at least overtly. And so people really forget how vicious it was. And yes, it is directly comparable now. And I don't think that trans people are some new special case. It's a regurgitation of the old bigotry. Mm. And it's also, it's worth saying that it's not just a sort of history repeating itself, but actually a lot of um, gender critical feminists are anti all sorts of other things that sort of fall into that same uh, basket of um, being generally kind of anti bodily autonomy, anti gay, you know, they are, as a rule, virulently anti surrogacy, um, and fail or, you know, deny there's any difference between um, surrogacy that is carried out unethically, in developing countries and surrogacy that is not carried out in that way. Um, in, in the UK, for example, or in the US. Um, and they're also virulently anti sex work, mm. right? So if you see it in that context, I think it sort of starts to make a lot more sense suddenly. And it just so happens that at the moment, trans people are the easiest to attack. So that's that's where they're putting all their energy and stuff. But, but in the background, they are also attacking sex worker rights and, and access to surrogacy, which really, we mustn't forget that. Completely agree. In terms of just the final part, because we're overrunning, and I know, Freddie, for a start, you've got, you've got your kid and your mum's looking after your kid, so we need to hurry up. We need to get this moving. Fine, they're watching Monsters, Inc. Oh, oh, oh what, a, what a classic. Um, so in terms of going forward, what do you think the key demands that would really transform the lives of trans people in this country and elsewhere as well? Where, where, would, we, where would we go with that, Sean? Um, so healthcare is a huge one. So I would say bodily autonomy, the right of all trans people to be liberated in terms of control of our own bodies and our own destinies, as a result, would be the kind of rallying call. The British trans healthcare is terrible with terrible waiting times. So that would be a huge one. So bodily autonomy, safety on the streets, um, regardless of how you look or how you present and access to, to, to safety, so housing, access to support services. So I think, yeah, I would say bodily autonomy and access to safety in a nutshell. Mm. Freddie. Um, I'm gonna take the question slightly differently and go to the other end of the spectrum, because I am always banging on about empathy. And I sort of feel like we could, you know, forget for a moment the extremists on the other end of the spectrum from us and think about the people in the middle who are potentially confused but fundamentally good people i think we often forget in these kinds of conversations how little other you know like everyday people we might pass in the street understand or know about our experiences it's always really shocking for, for a journalist like me to to realize i don't need to be talking about all this kind of complicated stuff i literally just need to explain the most basic stuff again and again and again. I don't mean that in a sort of, uh, you know, I'm happy to do that. That's my job. Um, but another really good way that we could create a little bit of empathy and, and just get the basics in order to make this these people in the middle less vulnerable to the sort of horrific headlines that they might see in their Sunday paper um, or on, uh, you know, the national broadcaster. Just read a book or watch a documentary or listen to a podcast um if you do one thing this christmas break when your all your plans have been planned all your plans have been cancelled um i urge you just just do that just watch disclosure brilliant documentary on netflix i think everyone in the trans community probably assumes everyone else has seen it too but i'm sure they haven't <laughs> 
So if you have Netflix, watch Disclosure. Read uh, Trans Like Me, the book by C.N. Lester. Um, you know, there's loads more. And there's obviously tons of podcasts. Um, one from The Vault is a really good podcast by Morgan M. Page. And obviously read Sean's book when it comes out. Buy my children's book, which is coming out next year. <laughs> buy all of our shit. Buy <laughs> media. Sit on your sofa. Like, it's not hard. Don't, you know, just like do do the baby steps first. Please. And also, by the way, before I forget, go to Freddie's YouTube channel. Type in Fred McConnell. I think that's how you find it. Fred McConnell on YouTube. Uh, and subscribe. Really great. Fascinating. If you want to hear, again, Freddie talking about whole range of issues to do with trans rights then please go there and being a transparent um and just just finally very finally what can cisgendered people people who aren't trans do as allies to support trans people because again a lot of people watching this i think people watching this might have started i'm confused i don't understand it and now think well actually this has made me think i want to i want to help in some way so what what can they do Tron. so i'd say one thing because i think a lot of people might be aware of the online kind of uh, battles, and we've talked a lot about that, is think about where to use your energy best as an ally. One of them, I would say, is not arguing with people online. You're not going to convince someone who fundamentally believes a trans woman is a man. There's no point in arguing with them. So I would say a better look at way to direct your energies is to look at like in your own life and what whether you're an activist whether you're a student is how can you make the communities and the spaces that you're in trans inclusive are there trans people there if there aren't why so that's one very basic way the other way i think is to, is it's a bit crass but to give money <laughs> to uh to trans organizations um gender intelligence works with trans youth um as i mentioned akt formerly the albert kennedy trust or stonewall housing who work with homeless trans young people is that that's a very material way tangible way to support people and doesn't require that much effort but yeah i would say look at look at the kind of environments you're in and if not um money to organizations working with the most you know in need trans people exactly and for example mermaids as well um yeah. freddie what what can cisgendered non-trans people what can they do uh, I feel like that's how I kind of answered the the question before. So oh, I suppose, you did really, yeah. I know. I don't know. Why I just forced yeah. it to do it again. But but I mean, yeah. Just to what John was saying, like, um, and maybe even more specifically, think about the thing that you do in your life, if it's your job or whether it's or it's a hobby or something. And maybe there's a if if, if you know, or if maybe so. My area. If you're a birth worker, if you're a midwife, a nurse, anything like that. Um, Think about how your uh, workplace can be could be more trans inclusive, or, or or you know maybe find the non-binary midwife who is doing all that work by themselves. Because I know in some places they exist and, they, and they've got a lot on their shoulders. So, yeah. Thank you so so much to both of you. You've been absolute legends, and people have I can see the huge amount of appreciations. Uh, our brilliant moderator, thanks to the moderator, has got rid of all their. Just really sad, transphobe, pitiful individuals. <laughs> oh, it's like, oh, it's Christmas. The world's collapsing. The world's literally collapsing. People are dying. Literally right now, people are dying coronavirus. And all you can do is sit in your pants on the internet going, oh, my trans people. It's pathetic. Embarrassing. But it's been really brilliant. Absolutely incredible, insightful, thoughtful contributions. I learn loads. And people watching this, I know, will watch loads. People keep watching this video. Most people watch this video uh, when it goes out. Uh, but thank you, people who watched it live. Uh, and thank you for your support. I'm going to read when the guests have been allowed to leave uh, in a second. Everyone who supported us on Super Chat, which is hugely appreciated. But please, 
buy Sean's book when it comes out next year. I'm, I'm sure we'll do a one-on-one video about, hopefully in person, uh, about uh, Sean's book when it comes out. Also, Freddie, get Freddie's book. Subscribe to his uh, channel. Follow them both on uh, on Twitter. Sean is Sean Faye, at Sean Faye. Freddie, is it Freddie? It's just Freddie McConnell. No, is it that? Is that yeah. your username? Yeah, it is Freddie McConnell. Yeah. Why? Yeah. That's exactly great. Not Fred. Yeah, brilliant. So they're, they've both been absolutely amazing. Give them a round of applause wherever you are. Um, and uh, where are you both? What are you doing for Christmas? Such as it is. You're here too. Why do I keep rubbing my face in this? Uh, I, went out, I went out for lunch today. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't even think that was a thing anymore. I'm in tier four. I'll be at home with my parents, brother and child. It'll be great. We're very well, that's very very wholesome very sweet uh well guys i will let you both go i will speak to you both soon but it's been a massive massively appreciate particularly at a time of tumult that you've been out your time to 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 spend with us here on youtube so thank you so so much lots of thank love you, guys very welcome see you soon bye-bye cheers for listening everyone i hope you enjoyed that chat and if you do want to help us get even bigger and better then all your support is appreciated, either in the supporter function in the description or patreon.com forward slash owenjones84, where you will have a say over what we do and who we talk to. Um, please give us five stars on our iTunes to help get the message across. More people will listen, which is, you know, the plan. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll speak to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.